This podcast is protected under the laws of the United States and other countries. Unauthorized duplication, distribution, or exhibition may result in civil liability, criminal prosecution, and the wrath of the tall man. (laughs) Boy! And welcome to the first context and trigger warnings of 90 for Chill, the podcast with Cat Bus Russ. This is your host, Cat Bus Russ. Before I get into the episode, I just want to make some statements about what to expect that might again offend you we're talking about the movie gold diggers in 1933 so an inevitable kanye west joke is made i also end up dropping the f-bomb kind of sort of i really wish i had the time to go and do a proper edit you know throw my smegs in there but two jobs and pulling this episode out of my butt thanks to the poetic critic You gotta take what you get, but I still think we're definitely PG-13 this week. Well, you know, it's weird, because it was a mother, and I don't know if I've ever really seen that word heard in a PG-13 rated movie. I guess that was the only F-bomb in the original cut, or the theatrical cut of Live Free or Die Hard. Hey, I'm up there with Bruce Willis. Thank God I still have my mind, I suppose. Little hands says it's time to rock and roll. Bring the noise. Thanks again for coming to 90 for Chill the Podcast. This is your host, Cat Bus Russ, or should I say 90 for Chill the Podcast with Cat Bus Russ. Regardless, if you want your Amazon Echo or Google Nest device to play this podcast, just ask it to play 90 for Chill the Podcast with Cat Bus Russ, and I think that'll get you there. Or you could ask it to play podcast by Russ Stevens, and it should get you there too. So. But let's just get on to the show. This week, I've got to bring back the Poetic Critic. We're going to talk about Gold Diggers of 1933, which was kind of inspired by listening to the Junk Filter podcast, which featured one of my older sister's uh, good internet acquaintances, uh, Jessica Ritchie, at Ruby underscore Stevens on Twitter, where they discussed the downfall of musicals i should say roadshow musicals with comparing it to comic book movies now so we are going to work through that uh, maximalist versus minimalist cinema but before we get into all that we're going to discuss uh, i guess what film twitter is saying about the super mario brothers the movie uh basically we're going to have a discussion about you know does it have to be something for adults i guess is what it is like I say personally go back to Super Mario Brothers 1993. I think adults can get that movie, and I do offer ways of getting through that movie. So, I will quickly just say, if you want to be on the show, always looking for guests, send an email to rustthebus07 at gmail.com. That's R-U-S-S-T-H-E-B-U-S-07 at gmail.com. Offer me a movie theme, director, actor. As long as you focus on sub-100 minute movies, we're going to have a slice of fried gold. So... I hope you enjoyed this week's conversation with the Poetic Critic, and again, just offer me suggestions on what to do next. Thanks again to come for coming to 90 for Chill, the podcast. My army! Soon we will destroy the Mushroom Kingdom! Nervous? I fear nothing. You want to do this? It is on like Donkey Kong! 
Blue raccoon suit. Really? Not at all. Buckle up. Here we go. <laughs> Only in theaters April 5th. Sweetie PG. So this will be an interesting episode of 90 for Chill, the podcast with Cat Bus Russ. Because this is um new experience for me and I don't know really how to handle it. So with that, um, I have the Poetic Critic here. The movie we'll be discussing was probably mentioned in the introduction uh, that will be placed before this, uh, being The Gold Diggers of 1933, the third adaptation of The Gold Diggers, a Broadway play that I think that ran from 1917 to 1920, if I did my research search correctly. One of these adaptations was a silent movie, so this is a real interesting project. And um, But before we get to that, uh, Rory's just reviewing the world, uh, according to Kent Brockman, with uh, Donald Trump and the bar- being indicted the same day of the Wicked Barbie trailer. I do not know what to make of this movie, um, but, uh, you know, we're going to... I don't like to give her much praise, but I guess Jessica Ritchie was right uh, in in her meme of Kent Brockman talking about a doll it's from twenty. 20- it wasn't her. Well, she shared it, and you know, uh, it's just um, we'll get into my disagreements with Jessica Ritchie uh, eventually. Just um, based off, of, this comes from her, and it's mentioned on the C two E two roundup uh, of listening to her on the Junk Filter podcast. Um, and I'll get to all that, but, uh, so we got Barbie, we got Trump, and, um, so yeah, but, uh, Rory wants to bring up the Mario discourse. Uh, I thought it, I didn't know it came out this week. I still gotta get around the John Wick 4. John Wick does qualify for 90 for Children podcast, hence the entire franchise does. No, Keep... it doesn't. The fourth movie is not over two and a half hours long. Hey. Once you make a great movie, you can do whatever the heck you like. Kickbox if you want to talk about Kickboxer Resurgence, the sequel to Kickboxer Vengeance, which qualifies. <laughs> yes, give me the mountain and Christopher Lambert. Yes, they deserve that 20 extra minutes. <laughs> you gotta earn it, is all I'm saying. Um so yeah. Uh Rory was basically discussing how the video game nerds are pissing on children. Well, not video game nerds mm. so much as more professional critics and amateur commentators. Well, so I'm sure that includes some of the nerds. But the complaint, I haven't seen the movie and I'm not particularly interested in the movie. I'm kind of outgrown that kind of animated feature at and, this point. And I will suggest giving Super Mario Brothers 1993 a chance. Just ignore... The fact that, well, one, drink like John Leguizamo and Bob Hopkins did during the filming of that feature, and and two, ignore the entire relationship to the video game franchise. Well, I was going to say... And stick around for the Super Koopa Cousins Adventures pitch. (laughs) What you were going to say. Well, it's funny to see how this movie's had this gigantic opening weekend. Especially given that you don't really associate big opening weekends with Easter and spring break so much. No, you don't. No. And these days. But that it it's really enjoyed this huge opening weekend. 
and undoubtedly there will be a sequel. I mean, if there's any franchise that was practically to the manner born to have sequels, and it's have... one that really didn't become iconic until several games in, if you count the old Donkey Kong games. Well, now I have to watch it just because, are they going, did, did they use all the suits? I don't think they used all the suits, although they did work in the raccoon, I believe. Yeah, but screw the raccoon. Get the, if he's not full-blown to Nuki, it's not not great. I need to go and look for spoilers just so... No, he doesn't do the Tanuki suit. Does he do the kitty suit? Uh, yes, I believe he does the kitty suit. <sighs> but... And when are we going to get Mario in an accurate Tanuki suit? We're, in we're... <laughs> any case, the reviewers or... I mean, there are some, this, some of this is casual comments, some of this is professional comments, like there was one column in IndieWire in particular that's been talked up a bit. It has to do with the fact that the movie is not grand, clearly not grandly ambitious in terms of the plot or the characters. Uh, it's called the Super Mario Brothers movie, and it does not aspire to be much more than a Super Mario Brothers basic gameplay translated into a 92-minute movie with credits. Dang, that does make it sound like a short movie since credits these days run yeah, 10 like, minutes. Yeah, run as far as 10 minutes, you know. But I, I, I'm always trying to remember that in my head when I look at the run times for some of these movies, but... In any case, it's a, and I, I looked at the synopsis of Wikipedia, it is pretty straightforward. And some, a lot of critics seem unhappy that the movie didn't try to be ambitious in a way that we associate with, say, Pixar, Disney, although uh, Disney, that's really highly debatable, <laughs> or Studio Ghibli. As if it's now a crime that you just make a kids movie for kids and are not concerned with trying to appeal to the 30 and 40 year olds in the audience. Well, my stance is that with the so many video game systems, I mean, it took, it's 2023, it took five and a half years before my niece and nephew got a Nintendo Switch. That meant They've spent five and a half years, half of John's life, not being exposed to the Super Mario Brothers. Now that's a whole different conversation. Well, but that's worth indoctrinating kids into brand loyalty. I wish I could remember who said it, but you know, this goes back to the 1980s, really, when the toys, toys, and branding became a bit much bigger deal than they were. Four. Yeah, screw yeah. that liberal Congress that made us put that E-I, I-E, in the corner of TV shows on Saturday mornings. But, saying that it's a movie that will make kids happy, but not so much adults. And there are many kids' movies over the years that fell into this territory and are frustrated. I, They're the ones that tend not to be embraced as classics years later. You know, the, the cream rises to the top, I, actually. You see, for me, it's like... Okay, most painful YouTube review I ever did was for Twilight. 
Gave it two and a half stars. Hated it. But I know it met the audience. And I say give the audience, you know, as long as the audience, as long as you nail your audience, I think it's all right. There's, I mean, I've definitely seen movies that uh, batter the audience and that's wrong. It's Twilight is a cursed crusty doll. Oh, this is something for the tweens. That's good. Oh, this is... This this is the stuff you don't want tweens thinking about. That's bad. But we get the Muse song. That's good. But we have to make them ruin America's pastime to play that song. That's bad. So, did Renfield come out yet, or is that next week? That nah, hasn't come out. Okay, it's just they're really pushing up the pushing up the ad campaign now and uh then you got Sisu, a lot of YouTube commercials telling me to watch the trailer for that movie. So um but no, I'm just saying like no, kids get kids stuff. There's nothing wrong with that. Well And if you appreciate your children, you will appreciate it when they get their stuff. When as Gene Siskel once said, uh a film this here. A film that aims low should not be praised for hitting that target. And I th- I see the point he has there. If if the movie only is going to entertain four year olds, then it's probably not gonna have a lot to offer for other people. There is something to be said for real craftsmanship in any form of art, especially art aimed at children. I don't begrudge anyone who feels that way. Same time, though, with art aimed at children, you do have to accept that if if an adult doesn't like it and a kid does, that's probably okay too. We we all had our experiences as kids taking our parents. I'm not just talking about yours and mine, but the parent in general, the, the mass parent having to take their kids to something like the Care Bears movie. Hey, I can I still dug the Care Bears movie when I wa- went and did the my animation uh television to TV to feature animation episode, which I know that technically didn't qualify. The movie became before the series. I was 5. that uh, you know, there was in the eighties. We had a lot of kids' movies like this. Now, though, like the they had a Transformers. Movie. You see, I would say the Transformers movie wasn't like this because we went on a we went on a killing spree to start the movie off. This encouraged this has encouraged much of Robert Kirkman's writing for the Walking Dead. I will say that movie was trying to be more ambitious in an adolescent manner. I will grant you that. You know, and I understand the frustration you have with these highly branded productions that are ultimately just another piece cog in the merchandising. If anything, picking in particular on the Super Mario Brothers animated movie for being that, though, seems weird when I remember how a lot of professional critics gave too much slack to the Beauty and the Beast remake back in 2017, because it's really not that different when you think about it. 
it's just another piece of merchandise ah. off of the original work, granting that the Beauty and the Beast story, of course, was adapted in public domain fairy tale that said multiple iterations over the centuries. Um, no, I, I would say there's still a difference between that because you still had a product. I mean, really, who... Who thinks these live-action Disney movies is a great way to make, move merchandise besides for the accountants? Because I can't... I, well, I don't think they move merchandise. I have not seen... I want to dress up like... Uh, basically, oh, so we ruined Hermione cosplay. Everybody knows, oh, no, that's just somebody trying to mix both features now at C2E2. I mean, sorry, it's one or the other. You look like Belle from the cartoon. Dark hair, get your hair pulled back. Or you look like Hermione. I mean, I haven't seen the crossover there. So I'm just saying, like, it moves a lot of movie tickets, but I don't think it moves a lot of merchandise. No, not merchandise, direct merchandise based on the remake itself. Now, well, Elizabeth, of, I could see that moving money, making, doing it. Because a lot of people the, are real, give Maleficent more of a pass for understandable reasons. It was an alternative perspective on the material. Yes. But with Beauty and the Beast and the other live-action remakes in general, it's less of an issue of the movie having any merit in and of itself, but it's something that keeps the brand, the larger brand of the original animated feature going. And that's what I mean by moving the merchandise. Yeah, I just... Again, I guess I just haven't, I haven't bid on it, so it's, or, yeah, I pay it no mind, so I guess it's bloody har harmless, um, unless you're Martin Scorsese. Well, I remember... That's what we need, Marty's perspective on a Disney cartoon. Come on, Marty. Now, with... It's called synergy. If anything... It Emphasis feels... on the synth. If anything, the cynicism and pandering that goes into the Disney live-action remakes, I find less honest than the simple approach that a studio like Illumination would take to their productions. Yeah, I just can't say I've seen much Illumination that's really impressed me. Well, Illumination... Is kind of in the position DreamWorks was in for a while, and that DreamWorks was accused of making a lot of money off of very lightweight, churned out fare that wasn't really trying to advance the art of animation in particular. Well, I mean, um, let's see, what was it? Um, S <laughs> SKG, Spielberg, Geffen, and Katzenberg. Katzenberg. Well, just you know, Katzenberg pretty much started by ripping off animation style and stories, if you refer to ants, from Disney. I mean, would you rather do light fare or just be, try to be Disney light, I suppose? That's a way of looking at it. Uh, Illumination isn't, doesn't really try that hard to be Pixar from what I can gather. I haven't seen a ton of their work either. Mm. Although I do did really enjoy the original Despicable Me. Oh no, that's it's a solid movie. I think it it feels like it runs long. 
which is... I sometimes uh, wonder if the fact that that is a French-based studio affects the pacing issues. It could. French animation, has, there was pretty fairly thriving animation industry in France. It doesn't get talked about much. Well, G-Kids has imported some of the films that come out of that no, industry. No, not Nocturne. Not Nocturne. Uh, um, Ernest I'm, at Celestine. Yeah. Wonderful movie. Uh, April and the Twisted World. G-Kids mm-hmm. um, uh, has imported a bunch of them a lot. I mean, G-Kids is yeah, when, probably for anime imports, but... Yeah, but when you know it, uh, again, we're talking about... Uh, Illumination, and then it's like, oh, and G Kids, which is basically owned by uh, the Comcast Universal Group. I don't know. I think they they are because I think it was Universal who bought the because this used to be the old Pioneer uh-huh. anime label. It right. went went from Pioneer to Genion, then Universal Genion, mm-hmm. which is probably why they got the G. Could be. Yeah. Uh, so I'm just saying it's still own. It's still. French cartoons owned by, distributed by Comcast. That's just an observation more than anything. But I think that Illumination has kind of cornered the market in recent years on high concepts that sell to kids and families. I mean, the Sing movies were both gigantic hits. Oh, no, and you have Trolls. Uh, No, that was DreamWorks. Oh, wow. They're, again, all under the Comcast well, Universal umbrella. Is, doesn't have a ton of different properties. I mean, they well, no, rely very heavily on the Despicable Me and from their Dominions. But then, uh, what I'm just saying is, if, if since Warner Brother has their own animation department, I guess everything goes through Universal or Disney now. I mean... What was the versus the machine movie? Because I presume that was probably that was Sony. Sony. Yeah. So, I I I don't know. I mean, for me, I guess I'm not as cynical as I think I am. I am able to put myself in the kid's perspective. That's the only reason I'd ever want children is so I can have somebody to play toys with. With. Darn right. Yeah, we're gonna open up these WWE figures oh yeah i could resell them for money but no no toys are meant to be played with that's why i love funko pops because no they're they're like the original my little ponies i think it was Hal sparks or was it michael ian black or maybe even donald well, Lowe? when i i love the 80s yes. it was my little equestrian statue yes yes <laughs> but i almost uh, went i almost went and made that huge investment in the Funko Pop, My Little Pony toys. The original was like... They didn't do anything for me. No, but it was just the idea. Yes, I have the best of both worlds. But Illumination has done these really high concept, very simple, easy to explain ideas for movies. Yes, let's rip off the Muppets movie. Well, who hasn't by this point? If you no, look at no, the no, I'm, I'm actually musical. saying no, and that actually is an observation we'll get in. Um, I want to use for our main event. Um, no, I'm I'm just saying, as in I'm talking about uh, in in seeing as in ripping off the Muppets, not the Muppet movie. 
the Muppets, a feature from what, 2011? Yes. Yes. Gosh, you had to explain, give so many people a break when their kids ordered that movie when I was doing a customer service for Mediacom. What do you mean? Look, I did not order the Muppets. (laughs) It was my child. I got them the DVD. I don't know how they sent it up. All right. This is a one-time forgiveness. And my DVR is not working. Well, you're talking to the wrong guy. I'm going to have to transfer you over here. (laughs) So, okay. No, no. I would take a shot at fixing your DVR. It's usually on you, and it's usually as simple as the classic IT solution. Have you tried unplugging it and plugging it back in again? So, yeah, I guess, as I say, I can put myself into the place of a child. I still have that whimsy, which is probably something that might be detected on my dating profiles, and hence why I haven't gotten much action. What I'm trying to say is I can do that, too. But I do feel that it's almost more honest to just do a simple movie that kids are going to enjoy as opposed to what I think Disney does, at least with the live-action remakes and going by something like Frozen. Sometimes they're animated features of movies that pretend to be mature and more universal in their appeal when they're, they really aren't. Well, so I guess this is really to wrap it up. Where does this really put you on the Mario discourse? Well, we're, uh, well, I'm of two minds. I do think it's important that kids have high-quality entertainment mm. that they can enjoy. But some, but like all of us, kids don't always want, aren't always going to be in the mood to engage with a high-functioning experience as it is, dealing with the great challenges of life. Um. The way that uh, some Pixar movies certainly prime years of Spielberg, if you can even say they ended, or the best Studio Ghibli films do. Kids do like to... Some people on Twitter were commenting, the kids have it hard these days, when you really think about it. Active shooter drills. Constant bad news. Doom and gloom about the environment. Okay, so you want to put them through Nausicaa Valley of the Wind, really, like... See, you're going to have to fix this, too. (laughs) Exactly. You don't have to push them on that all the time. If a kid wants to enjoy dessert, you should make sure they get a balanced diet of fresh fruits and veggies. But they deserve their desserts, too. If they want to see the Mario movie and they really enjoy the Mario movie, then I say let them have it. See, now I'm just, again, like, when you say kids, you know, kids eat their vegetables. I didn't eat my vegetables. I'm fine. And chicken nuggets are eternal. As in excellent taste. That little tempura batter on that little piece of chicken, of compressed chickens. I really do think it's those little videos you see online of chicks being devoured in mulching machines. And then cut to the kids cheering. <laughs> um... No, I, I mean, I guess, I guess I'm just way too much like a kid because it's like, yeah, nuggets are still awesome. Why have we, why have we kept, 
Why are people pushing boneless wings down our throats? The nugget was perfect. I'm going to keep eating my nuggets. That's where I'm at. It's like, no, I, it's like, um, you know how difficult it is to tell a Studio Ghibli-like story. And, you know, and John Lasseter, sorry to bring up that twat, would probably, you probably agree with me. It's like, yeah, these are really constructed stuff. They're not kids' movies, I would even go and venture to say. And, and I think that's sort of... Disney, I think that's Disney's, Disney's problem is that the kid is the number one focus, hence why their films are think about the parents second and don't hold up as well now. I think that does a disservice to a film like My Neighbor Totoro. It is a wonderful movie for children to the point that it is also a fine film for adults. It's well, simply that entertaining and artfully constructed. Good. And that Okay, you want to talk about vegetables and dessert. Let's go to the original intended My Neighbor Totoro experience. Famously, this movie in Japan was a double bill with Ghibli's saddest and darkest film, Grave of the Fireflies, partially because it was seen as a sort of palate cleanser after how heavy Grave, Grave of the Fireflies was. Yeah, so I, I, I mean... It does think, seem like an unusual way to re release a film. Though one must keep in mind that in other countries, what is seen, what topics are, can be broached with children and which cannot, is sometimes significantly different. Yes, that's true. But again, Miyazaki, especially with My Neighbor Totoro, and... Or even the, something, another comparison might be how many people responded to Ponyo in this country when it was given the... English language translation and dub. A lot of it seemed there was some pretty confused uh, responses to it in the wake of coming, you know, right after stuff like House Moving Castle and Spirit of the Way. Because Ponyo really is a children's movie, it runs on complete, almost nonsense logic. But here's the, here's the thing, and I'm going back to at least... How, see, how, the little fishy almost caused the apocalypse. Yeah, but I'm going I'm going back to the Hayao Miyazaki Just once pointed that out. And I thought about getting a cat, cat and naming it Ponyo just so I could say, Ponyo, Ponyo, little kitty in the sea. He's a, she's a little cat and with a big belly. Cats, le cats love water. <laughs> That's a terrible name for a kitten if you're looking at it that way. No, because it's going to get fat, like, and the witch is fat, and you get to sing about its belly. Like, they sing in the, about the fish. Yes, I know. But, um, no, I, what I'm saying is I think Miyazaki is writing is, regardless of the story, which goes back to Howl's, is writing his own story. And I think it's to entertain himself. He just happens to be very open-minded and go in dealing with everything he had to deal with growing up. Hence why he probably said, yeah, put it after the World War II movie. Um, I'm just saying, I, I think he's, I think he's just a, not a childlike director, but I think he appreciates telling children's stories. I think that's where we're, we're on a disconnect. It's like, he's telling his own stories, but he wants everybody to understand it. 
And Walt Disney does not take that kind of approach. They basically... No, that's not a fair statement. Many of the most beloved Disney movies, particularly in the 1930s and 40s... Okay, that was Walt... ...knew that they had to be entertaining to an adult audience just to push the idea that audiences would sit for a full-length animated feature. There weren't a ton of those, certainly not in this country. Well... At but, the time. but then I would say still we didn't have to worry about crappy kids animation until the 1980s and well, the 70s because Hanna-Barbera would just put out anything um, no I, I, then I'm saying it's strictly an 80s kind of concept then that started it again the toy line stuff like, toy tie-ins of course have existed toy tie-ins have but trans, 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 Transformers G.I. Joe my Little Pony. It did the cartoons, more industrialized. The ca- yeah, I'm, yeah, that's what I'm saying. The cartoons became not at least because were of what to happened with Star Wars. Yes, but I'm just saying they were made. Those th- three cartoon series were made to move toys, strictly merchandise. So that that's where I'm like, eh, I, and you know, Care Bears. Yes, I like that movie. Um, I'm. And I want to see Care Bears 2 again. And I want to see the third one that you can't see. Um, I want to see Rainbow Bright and the Starcatcher. Screw you, Netflix. For, Ooh, we better make our own content. <laughs> no, you were, a, you were my video store. This brings me, though, to the last reason why I'm sort of two minds about the Mario discourse. You forget that even a low-budget relatively uninspired movie can be as sparking to the imagination of the right child as any of the high art examples. Not every... When I was that young, it's... You don't always differentiate... You don't differentiate quality necessarily. Part of it is just getting out to the movie is the experience in and of itself. You're not necessarily going to care what you see. But I remember in the mid-80s... When I look back now as I catch up with many of the canonical titles, there were many like the Goonies or Gremlins or Explorers that I didn't see at the time, which I couldn't have seen, and which I wasn't necessarily interested in because I was fairly tender. Yeah, Explorers, that was basically more, Mom's not going to take us to see a sci-fi movie. Well, that's probably true. But I'm just using it as an example. What... But what we did get go see were we saw a lot of the toy-based yes. movies. We saw... Rainbow Bright the Starcatcher. Star Steel. Steel see? That's why I need to see this movie again. Um, Care Bears 1, 2, and 3. Uh, My Little Pony. Transformers. Well, we also would see the Disney reissues. And yeah. We saw the Muppet movies. Not yeah. the creature shot movies, but we did see the mother. Right. Again, that's something like mother would just want to get. I still have a deep fondness for relatively simple stuff like Sesame Street Presents Fallen. No, Ever. it's, yes, again, Muppets, it's not essentially. As sophisticated as the mainline Muppet movies, but <laughs> still quite intelligent and witty. As is what I recently got around Yes, to I saw that. <laughs> you saw in Letterboxd that I really enjoyed the Elmo and Grouchland movie, a film that 
is unapologetically a kids movie, but is very, very, very good at well, being a but this is, children's here, here, movie. Here, here, here's where it all comes together with Super Mario Brothers, the movie, is that we had an entire gen our parent well not really our parents they're the boomers are a little too old but the gen xers they got sesame street yeah and the gen and i'm a gen xer but the millennials grew up on mario so i'm just saying why there's fondness for there's a built-in fondness for it for these properties because the generation prior was so basically what i'm saying is i i think the problem is the mario discourse is i say goes back to the nerd element is like we were pumped to finally get our mario movie screw 1993 which again was a prob- problematic because parent those parents did not grow up on mario brothers and now they want something ambitious and it's like no, this is to, this is for your kids. You like Mario the same way they like Mario, or you should. And if you don't, you're being a douche. There we go. That's my discourse. I was trying to say that we also should not underestimate the potential for kids to latch on to movies that otherwise aren't treated as cool or high art or even good, even when they grow older. The movie I keep coming back to from the 80s, and we've discussed this movie before, is Santa Claus the Movie from 1985. I'm still inordinately fond of that movie, even for the myriad flaws it has and how strange it is. Yeah, John Lithgow is Superman at the end? How else do you breathe in space? It's there we go. In, he was in the Phantom Zone. They talked about this on the audio commentary. Well, there you go. <laughs> why? Why? There we that. go. Like, but it is James a- Gunn. You would appreciate that. Bring us John Lithgow out of the Phantom Zone. Now, I, as I was saying, as flawed as that movie is, and as strange as it is, though, no stranger than. Rainbow Bright and the Star Stealer, which came out the same yeah, month. Yeah. Same, yeah, same month. Yeah. I know both bombs. Uh, well, Rainbow Bright just didn't do much business at all. Santa Claus but the movie, cheap, cheaper, cheaper to make, yeah, hence no, right. no money lost. Right. Santa Claus the movie actually did substantially better at the box office than most of the other kids' movies of 1985. And But like The Black Cauldron from that same year, it wasn't nearly enough to make up the budget. Yeah. So it's all relative. But a lot more people saw it than, say, they did Labyrinth, for instance. Or Young Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, I, I think... Or Explorers. And... Or the Sesame Street movie. Okay, that's surprising about the Sesame Street movie. I mean, I still follow... Okay. Yeah, but, okay-ish, but... But... No, those... I mean, it's stuck around a while. Yeah, I, I think it... Look, I don't think it... I, I think it wasn't until Pixar did... Did we really have parents who took the time to... I don't know what... Jeez, I don't really know what the deal was. Like, wouldn't you... Okay, Explorers, Labyrinth, uh, Dark Crystal, um, 
I think the problem with those features is that parents may have been a little too, didn't have enough faith in their children to totally understand it. If they leave the movie disappointed and you like had fun, well, then it was still a lost trip. Well, that's an interesting way of looking at it. It's like, but I mean, I, how many times did I like? I was I was sadly the adult with all my friends in the two thousand one. Oh, swordfish, man! Yeah, this is absolute garbage. And Holly Berry's boobs didn't save it. They wasted Vinnie Jones. That is unforgivable. You can if you cast Vinnie Jones in a movie, you best not waste him. But that's what I... Yeah. It's weird that we can come down so hard on kids' movies and not keep in mind that they, like any other form of movie, can be loved for all their flaws in a way that movies aimed at adults are. It's a complicated situation. Well, I don't want to say... Yeah, until we watch the movie... I don't want to say give it a pass because it's a kid's movie. Right. I mean, but as a person who's played Mario video games since 1989. Yeah, we were a little slow to get the Nintendo. Actually, that was probably me and you being contrarians about what system we should get. That mom and dad didn't have to worry about actually getting a system. You were all Nintendo, Zelda. I was all Rambo 3 and Sega. I was just, I, I might just be a contrarian to begin with, because who the, did you know anybody who owned a master system? I, I don't know. What no. I'm saying in the end is that with kids' movies, it's okay to, it's okay to hold them up to a reasonable standard of criticism as you would any adult movie, but you shouldn't be, act like it's the end of the world if well, it didn't entertain you, but entertains kids. Right. Well, it's not the end of the world, but I'm just saying, like... Like, I guess I'm saying, yeah, give it a pass, because couldn't you th- couldn't you put yourself in somebody else's shoes, you, you know? And as a society, we don't like to do that. So, yes, I blame you, society... And I just feel like going back to the Simpsons, Dr. Hibbert. I don't know how to solve this case. Do you? Well, I guess I have to. I mean, that's my job, right? Right. All right, so. You need a bathroom break, anything? Uh, Yeah, I need a bathroom break. Okay. 90 for Chill, the podcast, proudly presents to you Allie's Accessories Shop on Etsy's Trash Feature Review. This toast is burnt. Fire me. How long have you and your wife been together? 19 years. Wow. We must be doing something right. Mama for dinner again. Whoa, 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 whoa. You're going to the prom like that? I think he looks fantastic. He can't go dressed like a hustler. Two kids? Three. My father-in-law's the youngest. I don't even like him. If a 
lot of gin you consumed. It's better if you keep it in the freezer. It's better if you don't drink it. Come on, people. We have five shocking moments in every script. We only have three. My boss is very unpredictable. How often do you and your wife have sex? Not as often as I'd like. Script doesn't work. Want something? I'll expect it. I'll find something. Find it with Robin. She's gonna help you. It'll Mark. be fun. We can work at my place. Who'd you dance with? Do you mind if we not talk about this? Because I had a good time. I'd rather not wreck it. I say we swim before we work. You're very good at this. So are you. You just need to listen to that voice inside. You've been married a gazillion years. You must be bored senseless. What do you want to do? I can see that what's happening here is a huge downer for you. It's not quite the party you were hoping for. Maybe there's a better one happening somewhere else. It's hard, isn't it? Parents, children, being married. I woke up from a dream Picnic on the beach. It was kind of fun, actually. That's a switch. Yeah. If we like him. I can't do this alone, Ned. At least I'm not stuck in a bad marriage. I never said it was a bad marriage. I thought fun is what you were missing. Me too. You're gonna find someone just like you, I promise. They're good, your boys. They're beautiful. Very lucky. Sometimes luck has nothing to do with it. So I've just concluded watching Every Day from 2010 with starring Liev Schreiber, Helen Hunt, Carla Giziana, uh Susie Eddie Izzard, and Brian Dennehy. Uh, Ezra Miller also seemingly very creepy, kind not really creepy, which is just weird. It's just his his ambiguous vibe he offers. Um, I guess it goes all the way back to 2010. I remember it. Well, I mean, obviously, probably got him the fantastic beast franchise and then in turn that entire train wreck bit that's about all i can really say about Ezra miller is that he's always going to play characters that just don't seem normal which is not good for this feature because that means he's gay uh this feature is about leaf schraver um just trying to make sense of every day uh being married to helen hunt two kids helen hunt's bringing his hers father who's pretty much on the way out to live with them. Basically, he's just feeling like there's something missing in his life. And his job is writing for some, I guess you'd probably say HBO or Showtime show, involving a lot of just weird sex humor. It's produced by uh, Izzard, who just wants ridiculousness and pretty much makes our straight-laced protagonists team up with the just the out there pretty young thing Carla let me read the box Carla Carla Gugino it's Italian so best I can do it's not really you know there's nothing to hate about it I mean it's just rather dull you know oh Another man just trying to figure out how to get his life together if it needs to be get gotten together. It's kind of like this is something you're you want to show 
like a girlfriend in a crappy or dull relationship to show her, you know, this is how guys are and how really, you know, yeah, we do stupid things, but we're really good people type thing. It's like lifetime for men, essentially. I think it just, um, as I say, it's nothing hateable. It was written and directed by a Richard Levine. It's just why, I guess. It's just very much, especially again, it's just basically, you know, trying to justify the stupid things men will do and kind of justify them because look how crazy your life is with a dying father-in-law a gay son who's trying to figure himself out and be a part of the scene um you know your white you know the entire thing of trying to get the attention of the wife and you know all the craziness that can be offered by your coke and marijuana fueled writing partner it's Got some good performances. Izzard's good in it. Lee Shriver is more of a character actor, which is what I like him in, but he's solid. You can't be angry at any of the performances, I guess is what I'm saying. I like Brian Dennehy to be Brian Dennehy, not not some dying guy. And I know he made it another 10 years, but it's like, ah. he's the guy who put who went toe-to-toe with Rambo. It's nothing that I'm going to go and rewatch, but as they say, it's an inoffensive piece. In other words, again, it's more of just the premise of just trying to justify poor decisions by men in scenarios where they shouldn't, where, you know, you got to think about the commitment. So, I don't know. This is coming from a guy who's single, no interest in ever getting married. So... So again, just proves that the audience is not very large for this feature. What did I let you think? I told you I had a great show, and I have. It's always the way. I got the show, I got the music, I got the cast, I got the theater, all rearing to go, and it's the old, old story. Money. I'm not kidding. I'll give him the money. He'll have it in his office at half past ten tomorrow morning. Where are you going to get $15,000? We'll make those guys pay for their fun. Right through the checkbook. Underneath your... What do you know about me underneath? Huh? Uh, uh, I mean... Oh, I know what you mean, yo, sugar. <laughs> you watch out, I'm falling in love with you. <laughs> and oh boy, when love comes at my age. Guess who?
Alright, so bathroom breaks have been taken. Just a number one for me because of the hot dogs and macaroni and cheese for a dad's celebration of 75 years. We'll probably keep the back end taken care of. Ah, goofy. He's keeping it classy, folks. <laughs> hey, it, it, that could still be TVG. Which is kind of weird, because that's my first note about the gold diggers of 1933. It's just gold diggers of 1933. Oh, sorry, sorry. I know people hate grammar. No, 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 that's, that's, it's just one of those weird ones, well, yep, no, no, Kanye was right, just keep it as gold diggers. Ooh, now, that's keeping it classy. (laughs) No. Um, but, the uh, gold diggers... Of 1933. No, it is. You know, it is the Smashing Pumpkins, not Smashing Pumpkins. If we're gonna get into grammar, sorry. Um, Is I brought up that my entire bathroom discussion and still TVG, which is kind of weird when I get Alicia Malone mentions in her introduction for the Gold Diggers in 1933 that oh, conveniently placed coins. In uh in the opening number, and it's like that is not again. This goes back to our discussion, I think, about our Arthur and the sheer fact that the moment you bring prostitutes into it, this is not a parental guidance suggested. This is don't let your kids watch the movie about hookers <laughs> with hookers, I should say. Um, and you know, I, I go on about that and like, hmm, um, that. Man, I need more show tunes at the strip club just so I can see the coin kind of dancing and such. So, yeah, um, but this was pre-code. Yes. So that's the, uh, and we'll get into the darker elements of that. Well, first, how many pre-codes have you seen? Um, For those unaware uh, of the devil. Not a lot of domestic movies, and I'll I'll be upfront about that. Okay. Uh, Angels and Dirty Faces, um, as I say, most of them come, like, I've seen Battleship Potemkin, but that doesn't have to worry about the code, nor did M. Um, The code was established at the turn of the 1930s in Hollywood. 1936, I think. No, it's a little more complicated than that. The code was initiated around the turn of the 1930s, but was not stringently enforced until around the end of 1934, if I remember correctly. This, thus, films of the early 30s are often referred to as pre-code as being not stringently enforced. They were able to get away with quite a bit. The, after the code went into active enforcement, it remained in place well into the 1960s, but filmmakers from Alfred Hitchcock to, like Alfred Hitchcock, with films like Psycho, and from there, the increasing importation of films from other countries, especially uh, Britain in particular. No, I see. I thought it was more from... Uh, the growing popularity of films like the James Bond pictures or um, Antonioni's Blow-Up was a controversial title on release. No, I was thinking more of to, how Valley of the Dolls brought in the fact that our Sharon Tate character had to go over to... France and Sweden show her boobs to go and get any kind of press back home. Right, the importation of more explicit content from Europe in particular. Mm. But even films like the James Bond movies had a hand in breaking down the codes, restrictions, 
as they took off in this country, and the general collapse of the studio system as a whole, which yes. led to our flawed rating system up to date. And that's kind of ironic that you bring up James Bond and then come from Britain. Thank you. And what's your response? The video nasties. I'm just saying, ironic. Standards changed very quickly with the collapse of the Hayes Code mm. and the implementation of rating systems along with more explicit American content. It had a direct fate in the hand of what happened to Hammer films in the 70s. Hammer movies were fairly explicit for their day. Once the ratings code came in, they seemed a lot less so. Mm, yeah. In any case, uh, pre-code films are generally seen as the nine, roughly 1930 through 34. And there is a good documentary that you could probably see if you subscribe to AMC Plus or IFC Plus. Um, Indie Sex, I've got it on DVD, but it's pretty good history about uh, at least the sexual elements like, get to see the original Tarzan stuff. Yay. Mm. The Hayes Code, of course, didn't just apply to what you, some would call prurient content, but it also applied to depictions of law enforcement, also regulated depictions of law enforcement, clergy. The man with the golden arm. Mm -hmm. Just bringing, just saying something like, then the comic books had the same problem. Yes, as well. when they had they had to wait till the 1950s for Crackdown to come in, but right. they dealt with the Comics Code Authority. Yeah. But like, pre-code films were... Spider-Man can't help, can't be an intervention. Sorry. Pre-code films were... Pre-code films were, can be very surprisingly rowdy and really enjoyable to, by modern standards, and it's Especially in the DVD era, I think, was what really led to a lot of the older titles getting excavated or reevaluated as if they weren't already widely available. And uh, Criterion Channel has done two programs now. They did one last year, and they've done one again this year with a somewhat different lineup of titles of Paramount's pre-codes. Paramount in particular was had some very lively pre-code movies, including their handful of forays into horror films, which are not as well-known as the famous Universal titles of this period, but in some cases is good. And they also did a handful of ones that qualify as uh, backstage musicals. And Warner Brothers did a lot to popularize the musical in the early 30s, along with the gangster film. And mm. yeah, was, I haven't. Yeah, I've got general urban that. general urban aesthetic to their films at a time when the musical was a fast growing genre at the top of the thirties. Now that sound was becoming common, the and especially the backstage musical, as it's commonly called. Mm. So. Old Diggers of 1933 was one of the many innovative productions where that featured Busby Berkeley staged mm. dance and production numbers, and was not the only one he did in 1933. The other big one he did that year was 42nd Street. Yeah. Um, 
there, the studio system was notoriously efficient. Oh yeah, no they. Especially, no, so. I will. I will acknowledge um, Ginger Rogers is so TCM's doing their celebration of hundred years of Warner Brothers, mm-hmm. and they that's hence the Alicia Balone introduction, where you can watch the Brad Mendelowitz if you as like a special feature on Watch TCM app on the Apple TV, um, but uh, they were bringing it up like, oh, we're following up our Cagney with another contracted player and Ginger Rogers. And um, I really do kind of dig this one just because Ginger Rogers really only has the we're in the money song and then nothing really else in the movie. I mean, she gets to kind of play as a wannabe gold digger. But, you know, good old um, Trixie prevents that. Yeah, the other... Well, for that matter, talking about the contract players, the other big Berkeley musical in 1933 is Footlight Parade, and Cagney Top lines that one. Yes, that, that was... Features in the final that, of the three extended mini-musicals that take up the back stretch of the movie. You see, that, that that's, again, another thing about the TCM, um, is, like, they immediately let, like, they basically cut the entire block of this... Mm-hmm. And that was the gold. Di- that was Gold Diggers of nineteen thirty three. And now we go into our next music with James Cagney as the uh, up front. Yeah. Like okay, but yeah, this is. Are you gonna automatically? I hate autoplay on streaming apps. So don't do that to me. Um. So, and again, that's another one of those confusing things. Like I saw it recently. Like I'm going through Disney Plus. Like hmm, turning red. What do you mean an hour 43? No, 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 no. That was 100 minutes. It's like, oh, yeah, now you got to put all those little bonus features and everything, you know. Just, like, pad it out. Um, But when it comes to the uh, musicals, again, with the uh, introduction by uh, Malone, uh, it was basically saying musicals were the attempt of this very masculine studio basically trying to appeal to women. Makes sense. Okay, it's I was just cu- sense. well. It's an interesting way to put it. I've never heard. Well, I'm I'm just saying that was uh that was um just what they said there. Yeah. Um, with that saying about musicals, it's like and women and little sisters who will not turn off freaking Grease. That I may have toned a lot of that movie out because I cannot remember Vi from Grease, which. Um, so it's kind of like, um, so that would have been Joan Blondell, Mm -hmm. you know, like, there was an ice cream shop waitress who got decent billing, because that was something like looking through trying to find this, like, I can't find it on HBO Max, I'll try Siri, and it pops it up, you can rent this on on iTunes or Voodoo, and then they show a description of it, and they bring up. Joan Blondell being in Greece is the big thing. Yeah. And this feature, she's Carol, who, like, well, we can go for, I got notes and notes and notes. Um, so, yeah, I'm really interested to see the silent version of this feature. Well, it's lost. Uh, it didn't surprise me. But, you know, talking about, obviously, Busby Berkeley, um, 
He gets grander build than Harry Warren and Al du- du- Dubin. I will. I do appreciate the joke in the movie where they're getting. So, Gold Diggers is about starts with a play that immediately gets shut down just before, because nobody has money in the depression to actually fund musicals. So our producer. So you have th- our three main star starlets living together in a New York apartment, very much behind on rent, and. But the producer's still trying to come up with something and says he's got a show lined up. He just needs the money. And they run into a brilliant pianist. Sorry, now I'm having flashbacks to the organist joke on Family Guy. but um, Who, and songwriter Brad Roberts, played by Dick Powell, and insists that he has to do the he He needs to do the music. And he's willing to fund the production. But how the heck does he have $15,000 living in a $25 a month apartment in New York? So there's a lot of fishiness. And it's eventually exposed that he's the a child of a, some Boston money. Mm-hmm. And his brother, played by Warren William. Which, this is fun as I'm looking through his IMDb, The Wolfman. Everybody was in The Bloody Wolfman. Claude Rains, Bella Gosi. Um, I digress. So yeah, um, and our main, uh, I'd say our. It's interesting. Like it's fun because the protagonist really isn't straight. To find like, you really want to relate the Polly Parker played by Ruby Keeler, but it's really Joe Blondell. Who gets mistaken for, Polly, by the, brother of. Dick Powell, Warren Williams, and basically she's trying to run a con on him to get even with right. saying that all showgirls are showgirls are chiselers, parasites, and gold diggers. Right. Um, many of the backstage 1920s and 30s musicals have these kind of complicated storylines, and to the point that the cliche of one character turning out to be <laughs> secretly wealthy was has been would be parodied in later music this is going back to that period such as uh, uh, the boyfriend so, or thoroughly modern millie well i mean this is half of Marilyn monroe's filmography when you really stop and think about it how to marry a millionaire mm-hmm. and of course some like it hot right. there's no hidden millionaire and some like it hot just yes. just very progressive story if we really want to sink into that because uh jack lemon was pretty much resigned to his fate well, there's a great write-up about that back in 1992 by Danny Peary in his Alternative Oscars book about looking at the that story and character. Mm-hmm. But anyway, this generally these backstage musicals, roughly, from my estimation, like the first two-thirds of the movie is mainly what you call the book material. Mm-hmm. And I know what you're getting to with that. With a, few, with a few songs, usually in the rehearsal context. And then the back third is given over to some big production numbers. Mm-hmm. And, and that's kind of the case here, I guess. Yeah, no, I think But you're... in terms of in the, many of the other 30s musicals I've seen, mm-hmm. such as uh, 
Well, there, there is a bit more integration in the RKO, Ginger Rogers Fred Astaire musicals of song and song and dance than some, you know, than talk, yeah. talk, song and dance and talk. And backstage musicals are more weighted towards the end, like 42nd Street or Footlight Parade. Mm, mm. And often in the Berkeley, these Berkeley musicals especially, the big musical numbers are mini, basically mini stories almost like short films yes which that's something um that honestly takes me out of the movie Musical like this theater. is like this is not how theater works and these are the actual we're beyond rehearsal when this stuff happens yes. and it's like i loved i loved loved we're in the money yeah i mean that that was brilliant that's but that favorite. but that's still Aside from Ginger Rogers popping up somewhere, like when they're doing the, and you know, introducing all your showgirls who didn't get introduced in the uh, Love Boat esque uh, credit sequence, yeah, you know, throw throw the little circle, you know, coin turns into a circle, and it's like, hmm, hmm, the Catholic boat, um, so. Yes, but I, I will say the once you get to Petting in the Park, which that that yeah, that ain't pre code. <laughs> um and then the last two musical numbers, like dude, these are awesome music videos, but it just takes me right out of what you're trying to tell the story of. Well, you have to go back to how musical theater evolved how musical theater evolved. Musical theater, of course, had its antecedents in such concepts as opera and ballet. Mm. The musical theater owed more to reviews and vaudeville, especially early on. Yes. Musical numbers in some of the proto-musicals the late 19th century were largely there so they could get some women out to show some leg. Well, oh yeah, no, no, no. And again, thoroughly creeped out by finding out Billy Barty is the little kid in this one. Like, they knew, like, they knew he's stunted, so he can play baby and he can play little kid, and, uh, yeah, we're gonna do that pervy stuff, too, with him. Um, so that, yeah, I get it, it's just like, yeah, I mean, but it's just like, if I go see, if I go to see Les Miserables, yeah. Les, I'm not expecting to, like, no, I don't, I, I'm in my seat. I don't get, are you going, is this going to be like a 4, 4D experience? So the seat's going to move around the stage so I can get that over, overhead shot? Right. It's an interesting matter of musical theater at the time often didn't make much of an effort, if at all. To integrate the musical numbers with the plot. Okay. Whether it was a backstage musical no, no, or not. And that makes total sense. Yeah. yeah. That didn't really start happening in American musical theater until the mid nineteen twenties with showboat. Okay. Now um, let me let me go on. Showboat was one of the first is in its own way a backstage musical. And most of the songs are what we'd call digetic, which means they are being performed for people in universe. Uh, other musicals that you could call Jezebek uh, of more recent vintage would be uh, something like Victor Victoria or the Blues Brothers or 
pretty much any vital musical would mm-hmm. be a Dujanic musical. Okay. Uh, some of Showboat is Dujanic, and some of it is more characters just singing to each other as a means of expressing emotion. It, yeah. And so, but then it was still a relatively recent development for film musicals. And it's we don't really get what's often considered the first musical to truly bring together story and musical narrative is usually considered to be Oklahoma, mm-hmm. and that opened in 1940 on Broadway. Yeah. Although, it's been pointed out that the early Disney musicals like Snow White also did much more than many previous musicals did to make the songs an active part of the storytelling. Yeah. Anyway, this does mean that in many of the 1930s movie musicals, you see, in terms of how they are staged, and that, yes, they are much more cinematic than the audience, the perspective the actual theater audience would have. That's also part of the point. The movie uh, compilation film, That's Dancing, these 1985 spinoff of the That's Entertainment films. So the, was that multiple studios for that? Or was that still the It was MGM, MGM but yeah. they did include material from other studios. Mm. And an early stretch is just talking about um, the Busby Berkeley films at Warner Brothers. Because, as is pointed out, Many of the early movie musicals, most of which were Dijanic, such as the film generally considered the first real talkie, the jazz singer, although the musical numbers are the only real sound part of the film, otherwise it's a straight silent. Mm. Uh, How do you keep Neil Diamond so quiet for that long? Okay, let me go on. I'm sorry. it points out that many of the early movie musicals that followed, beyond being Dijetic, also tried too hard to replicate a theater experience to the point that they look unbearably stagey now. The second best picture Oscar winner and the first talkie win was an MGM film from 1928 called The Broadway Melody. A lot of these uh, 30s musicals have very similar titles, and a lot of them had spiritual follow-ups. Mm. Uh, well, I mean, there's Gold Diggers, 1937, Yeah, and they're not direct sequels. They're just mm. not working on similar themes. Yes. But and Broadway Melody is a, is a dreadful movie. I have seen it. It's very stagey in terms of the musical numbers, and it's not very interesting to look at. It's like, it's like a pro, what we now call a pro shot, the term for uh, just filming the theater performance. Oh, we, we've seen the cinema snob, or was it the, po- uh, yes, we saw the cinema snob tackle, the, tackin, uh, tackle Gordon Herschel Lewis's attempts yeah, at that. Yeah, the magic world of Mother Goose, yes. <laughs> but... Essentially, a lot of the early, some of these early musicals play pretty much like a re- really dreary pro shot. Berkeley's innovation was that they should find Ooh, ways to best. It, Broadway Melody won Best Picture. Yes, it's, it's a first, five point six on IMDb. Not many people like it at all. It is very dry. It does qualify for ninety for Chill the podcast. Okay, I could have gone with the Best Picture. Okay. Yeah, you wouldn't have enjoyed it. 
Well, I mean, it is it is pretty dreadful. I can see where it might have thrilled people at the time, but again, then even a few years later, in nineteen thirty, later in the thirties, with one of MGM's other best picture winners of that period, The Great Ziegfeld, which is a tribute to Florence Ziegfeld, was one of the great show, showmen of the early twentieth century, and uh, runs through is a bio musical with big production numbers. Again, that one suffers for being stagey most of the time. Aside from one number that's shot to look like it's all done in one take. Mm. I think it's really two takes, but they, they yeah, no, cover it, the scene. They're not very interesting to look at. There's this great old book, reference book I had back in the mid-90s called, this called Movie Awards. It had listings of all major movie awards. And the writer was saying, what was it our grandparents thought, thought was so impressive by women dressed like they're all figures on a giant wedding cake and just looking at them? Which is how the, the big set piece in the Great Sigfeld does look. I, well, actually, um, I, can, I can go, this doesn't really have, again, I, I guess my Busby Berkeley complaint, aside from the fact that these are music videos, these aren't musical numbers, and honestly... I want, I'd rather have, I, I just still, like, despite what you've been saying looks bad, um, no, I really, I want the theater experience. Um, no, you don't. That's what ki- helped kill, kill the movie musicals over the 50s and 60s was being too stagey. Uh, There's a reason the sound of music is better known as a film than as a stage musical because they were able to open it up. I mean, this... All right, we're going to go right after uh, the jug filter. It really comes to the end of the argument. Like, oh, comic book movies are dead. And Wait, you haven't brought up why you want to bring up the jug filter podcast. Oh, no, it was... And I am, actually. Um, and I, I think it makes sense what I like to see. I want to stay in. I want to stay in the moment. I don't want this wide thing. And I mean, you're experimenting with what Berkeley was doing. He was making music and dance on film truly cinematic, right? But that like basically says don't go to the theater anymore. Well, Footlight Parade kind of plays with that because in that that movie, the uh, producer played by James Cagney comes up with the idea of if people don't want to go see stage shows anymore, he can run short musical musical shorts that can be staged before the movie. And the climax of the movie is he has three of them open at once. No, <laughs> I, think I think I'm familiar with that, that yeah. actually. And again, no, it's not the sort of thing you'd see in real life. But in the 1930s, um, we're still really just... Finding our full potential for film at the time, we're exper- we're experimenting with how ex- exciting and dynamic it can be, and yes, it sometimes requires some suspension of disbelief. That's true, but if a suspension of disbelief, one, I'll watch professional wrestling or partake. Available for bookings, uh, but here here's goes to the junk filter because. Basically, Jessica says, we don't need comic book movies, we just need maximalist cinema. Look, 
What Russ is referring to is a recent episode of the Junk Builder podcast hosted by Jesse Honkin. Mm. A recent episode featured him and a dear acquaintance of mine, Jessica Ritchie, making an interesting series of comparisons and contrasts between the 1960s roadshow musical run of films that were trying to capitalize on the success of The Sound of Music, the biggest hit of its era, that ultimately sank the movie musical as a, well, you could say desirable genre for many, for several decades afterwards. Not that musicals weren't produced, but generally not on the scale that Pay your wagon. Yeah, something like The Sound of Music had. This was in part due to... She then... They drew a comparison between this and the currently shaky state of what some call the superhero industrial complex. The two films used to draw the point being one of the last of... Not one of the last, but one of the more notorious road shows, 1967's Paint Your Wagon, and the recent Black Adam movie from Warner Brothers. And I thought it was a very amusing argument, and one that, it's a comparison many of us in the film community have been ringing up for a while. I'm Egg, Too many eggs and too few baskets. Yeah, I'm thinking it's just more, like, I, I, I'm thinking it's, it's more just a, we, we want something different argument and I'm thinking like I don't see this as shaky as you you guys are you're just hope you guys are just ready to you you guys have the shovels ready you're just waiting for a body well maybe we were okay maybe we had a point (laughs) but then it ends though it's like well you see people are going to see Top Gun Maverick people are going to see Elvis we want maximalist cinema it's like this is very... The 70s was not about maximalist cinema. It was it was raw, Scorsese. And and, and just like, I wouldn't call The Godfather overly ma- massive. Apocalypse Now? Yes. I mean, directors got their chance to go into that stuff. But the best stuff is pretty grounded stuff. I'd rather we get, we get another indie boom like the 1990s. Then, then Top Gun Maverick, which looked like, I'm sorry, the movie posters, it's not the military industrial complex celebration that it is. The movie posters show me um, Miles Teller pretty much doing an exact pose of um, Anthony Edwards? No. Um, the guy the guy who played Goose. Um, on the piano. It's like, no, I don't want that. I don't want this rehash. Well, uh, and 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 when it comes to biopics, I don't want those either. Like Elvis, I've heard this. I know the story very well. I don't think you can fancy this up anything to make me interested in it. I don't think it's a great film, but I enjoyed the Elvis film very much. I'm not saying, um, yeah, but I'm just saying, but like, you're also making an unfair argument. About the nineteen seventies, not indulging in maximalists. No, I'm what I said. We had apocalypse now. I in Scorsese's done his. I mean, New York, New York. Near the end of the decade, yes. Well, but I'm just and saying. And they're not the best examples to make, given that they were Spielberg. relatively unex, unsuccessful. 
Right, but, but Spielberg and Jaws, that's all about suspense. It's not really Maximalist, because we didn't couldn't afford the shark to work. But there's but there's still a sense of scope and scale that he builds in that film, and even more so in Close Encounters the third time. But then you do get the entire you do get this massive alien ship at the end. I mean, but otherwise it feels very grounded. But other films of the night, but there was still a big attitude for escapist, grandiose filmmaking in the 1970s. As much as people like to romanticize the gritty stuff that Coppola and Scorsese did, they loved the old-style maximalist filmmaking as much as anyone. They just didn't get a chance to try it out themselves until later. As you look through the 70s, there are many wholeheartedly old-fashioned movies that were huge successes on a grand scale. Patton was the 1970 Best Picture winner, and so and the biggest hit of the year was Love Story, a deeply corny romance. It's yeah, all about but, emotional torque. But emotional early. torque, but it's not like, and now, now our grand, grand, you know, a grand number thrown in there, or... You know, well, fighter jets. Star Wars kind of ruined everything. Woody, I like Star Wars should have won Best Picture in nineteen seventy seven, but I'm not overly disappointed that Annie Hall did. But let's think of other big hits of the seventies that went there. Certainly, the disaster movie cycle was huge success. Yes, and I'm not a I'm not a fan of disaster movies. It's a style that I agree hasn't aged especially well. But you can see where the appeal was at the time. Silent Running is like when you want my when I want sci-fi, I'll go to Silent Running, which has a large scale, but still pretty. It's one actor in effects, and I'll go with um, shoot, Roller. Okay, Rollerball is kind of maximalist. Um, dang it, I had another one. Um, oh, Dark Star. Have a lot of John, like, smaller budgets. Yeah, but... John John Carpenter's early stuff, Assault on Precinct Thirteen, Halloween, like that. Like, I don't need all of these bells and whistles. I want. I don't need that to feel something. Carpenter emphasizes that. I, I, you know, and I, I want great stories. Scorsese emphasizes that, and Coppola. It's like. I don't need uh, something exploding. As somebody who loves violence, I don't need something exploding all the time. But, what a, but think of other big scale films. There were a lot of throwbacks to older styles of filmmaking in the 70s because much of New Hollywood was really the first, generally considered the first generation to grow up on cinema. Yes, they are, they, are, they are my Super Mario brethren. Of that time. Peter Bogdanovich did many homages to older forms and very broad, could work in very broad styles with films like What's Up Doc, his screwball comedy throwback. Yeah. Or, and he attempted a big old-fashioned 30s musical with At Long Last Love. Yeah, emphasis, a lot of this, though, on attempted. Well, you're not always going to succeed. Well, I'm saying it that maybe that's not up their wheelhouse. Like, when you look at Scorsese, I'd say his most grandiose pictures would be probably The Aviator and Gangs of New York. I love Gangs of New York, but it's a deeply flawed picture. Um, 
and I had no interest in the aviator. Again, it's like, oh, Howard Hughes. If that doesn't scream big, like, no, that's too big for my taste. The like, 1970s was the mo- the closest th- time that a filmmaker like Ken Russell could have been considered mainstream. True, but I like his. Tommy was I one like, of the biggest hits of 1975. And I and I will argue that the surf, <laughs> the Lair of the White Worm is a far better movie and a lot night like. Very quick, concise. Bagpipes, motherfucker. Uh, bagpipes. <laughs> maybe if the, maybe if the Who, who had some bagpipes. I imagine Keith Moon could do rock that. But the point is that there was plenty of big think, big scale cinema in the seventies along the lines of what we're seeing now. Not necessarily the deepest kind of filmmaking, and not always. Go- and sometimes they will swing for defenses and miss, but I think the seventies have a much more of a sweep than they're often given credit for. Oh, there's think more of, money to be made. Like Edwards you... f- took a while, but he figured out how to make grand scale comedies like the Pink Panther movies work in the seventies. The James Bond movies entered their campiest period in the seventies. Yes, and it's the worst period of James Bond movies. But it was largely financially successful all the same. Again. And there are people who will stick up for it, the Roger Moore era especially. Again, we're, we're, we're talking dollars is democracy. And again, to go back to The Simpsons, when will we learn democracy doesn't work? <laughs> um, I mean, you can, you can make more money on a low-budget movie that's awesome than you can on Maximalist Cinema. And... But if Maximalist Cinema hits big, it hits Top Gun Maverick bit, dollars big, that says something. Yes, but if it misses, then you're merging with Disney. What exactly did Fox do in, on an individual basis that led to it doing so poorly? I somehow don't think it was because they were making gigantic artistic swings. No, no, Fox was not. I'm just saying you're going to end up... I mean, Disney is waiting for the next person to screw up. Oh, I have, think of a lot of ways they've been screwing up lately. But, but you, have, you, have an entire, you have an entire backside infrastructure. The theme parks. The, the theme parks. ABC television. The fact that Fox just got... Fox, I don't know what, I mean, I don't know what Rupert Murdoch was doing so bad that he decided I cannot create, <laughs> create any kind of content besides lies. <laughs> I mean, maybe he was just going back to what he knew and what, what he made his money on, but like, that's a, I, I don't know enough about the, why Fox had to, Fox had, had to give up on all that stuff thing in favor of the maximalist approach is that, you know, we've been worried so much about the the death of the movie star movie. And yes, we've discussed some that. Some of these recent successes were very reliant on the charms and talent of individual performers. Some of them, I of think course, that's like Tom Cruise, are highly... I think that's a... Tom Cruise... Love it for all their flaws. Or up-and-comers like an Austin Butler type. I mean, the whole he does carry that Elvis movie. I'm not saying he doesn't. I'm just saying, like... 
in the okay, 70s. What else is Austin Butler? Like, movie star movies. Especially, that was part of the appeal of the disaster genre, was that they bring together all these stars, and it was a guessing game of who was going to croak. Even if they were top billed, you couldn't be guaranteed they'd make it to the end. Yeah, I just... The old Jabutu's Bad Movie Dimensions sign. I think it was Ken Begg who wrote, Part of the appeal of these movies was to see all your favorite classic movie stars fight it. <laughs> yeah, but a lot of them... Lot of, the okay, but a lot of them are so... So past their prime, it's like... Oh, a, it's true. Anybody... It's, it's a joke that, like, oh, right, let's... Let's see her who, who who held their breath for two minutes and then dies. Shelley Winters and the side. Yes. I mean I'm just saying like I'd rather I I think the problem with maximalist cinema is that okay, when are we going to suspend logic? I think we have no problem doing that. I can watch a like, I can watch an indie movie and not have to worry about that. A good one. Now, granted, indie movies are dependent that they keep keep making sense throughout of it, or it will fall fall apart. But why, 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 Harvey Weinstein? Absolute power corrupts absolutely. <sighs> no, I just like, but when it comes to the movie star, I think it's a good thing that we don't, because we're like then we're relying on Chris Pratt to be a movie star. Well, that's the point. That's what I'm saying. Really it's like we're be, they're not really able to develop a real persona when you're asking them to only parrot a few well-known IPs all the time. Well, I think that's part of might be part of the issue in his case. Well, yeah, but then you bring up passengers. I think that had a bunch, a lot of other problems going. Yes, on, you know? but I'm just saying, like, oh, Chris, Chris Pratt's going to be charming enough to warrant date raping, a a long con date rape of um, Jennifer Lawrence. It's it's definitely hard for those who have come up in the, who came to fame in the superhero industrial complex. Translate their talents to other roles. Well, but here's the thing: like with Chris Pratt, though, we knew him as a comedy guy before that, from Parks and Rec, or I, I guess you would say, Park and Parks and Rec fans knew him as a comedy guy. It was brought up on Robot Chicken, like where um, the nerd after trying is being. Uh, psychoanalyzed by J.K. Simmons' psychiatrist after he tried, his mom found him and had to call the hot, call call an ambulance because he tried to figure out what it would be like to get a BJ from a transformer. And before you say they're machines, now they do have gender. <laughs> and then we find out he's actually Legion, bringing in Offer Plaza's character from that, and like, are so from. Or affection. Oh, you're Aubrey Plaza from Parks and Rec. Uh, Parks and Recreations, affectionately known as Parks and Rec. Um, when I say affectionately, I mean by like a handful of people because your rating sucked. I mean, so that explains Chris Pratt. It's just that he seemed too charming for his own good. Um, but I don't know. I just like I 
really like where I really like it's just if you want to scream support for Maximal Cinema obviously the best picture this year does that um everything everywhere all at once I don't feel like I remember that one but you know what what can I was pulling for the Banshees of Irishian so um yeah I don't know now Let's see. What I will say about Gold Diggers is that the themes still fit today, sadly. Mm-hmm. You see this a lot with the pre-code 1930s films, especially. Yeah. Things don't change much. Right. I mean, that's just a sad state of how we treat women. Perhaps that that's the means why I keep ending up with showgirl-type ladies. It's like, somebody has to show them respect. Oh, yeah, I'm the mark. <sighs> so, I uh, see. Eh, there's a note I made. I was going to bitch about the kid in the music number, but it's hard to bitch about Billy Barney. It's still, again, very... That's some pre-code stuff, the entire petting in the park. And like, and then everybody, all the ladies, we almost get to see some skin. Definitely get to see some leg. And then we get to, how are we going to get these uh, metal corsets off these women? And Billy Barty, again, kids in movies. I'm just, I'm almost like, no, absolutely not. Couldn't Harry Potter take place at college? Could you imagine Harry Potter, Revenge of the Nerds type stuff? Um, yeah, it's, but again, it, uh, I don't know. Um. But, oh, here's something. Do we equate theater to the Muppets? Because that's what the Muppet show was. Muppets very much do come from that kind of vaudeville. But I'm just saying, that's the only thing we had as kids. Variety show tradition. But, yeah, that's the only kind of variety show we had as kids, really. Well, yeah, if you were a real little kid and you didn't see the last trace, if you weren't quite old enough for the last trace. see Richard Breyer's George Carlin laugh-in. Right, no, I'm just saying. A, there were a few stragglers in the early part of the decade because we didn't all have cable then. Yes. But the Muppet Show did work very much from the old traditions, and I think. But that's what I'm saying. I think because of the old traditions, modern people just don't get it, including the Muppets now. It's possible there has been that kind of break. I could talk on that subject of how. So much of children's entertainment has become much more cut off from interacting with the the rest of the world, including more adult forms of entertainment in recent decades, partially by design of something like Disney that wants to keep you in the bubble after a fashion. But, my, but if I'm to take it right, it's just that you preferred your musicals to simply be more integrated between story and songs and unfortunately you won't see a lot of that in a lot of 30s musicals no I, there are a few exceptions but not but that, that's that uh, again that brings me back to the busby berkeley getting big letters and um al dubin and harry warren get a joke made at their expense in the film yeah i'm getting rid of that warren and dubin <laughs> and um 
but the songs, like, I'm sorry, it's like, we, we always keep Alan Menken and his partner, mm-hmm. Howard, Ashman. Howard Ashman, I'm sorry, hey, I, I, you know, once, was it Ashman who died first? Yes. Yeah, sorry. I'm sorry. Once it's like they were gone and it's now Tim Rice and Elton John, it kind of feels like we lost something bigger and I lost, and I don't have the immediate recollection. So we did lose something bigger. Thank you, Elton John. Take his sir away. Come on, Chuck. Um Oh, I will have to so here's a legitimate question, lip syncing. In general... Because they said in the introduction to um, the feature, again, you know, how um, Ginger Rogers was just having fun and got caught singing Where the Money in Pig Latin. Mm-hmm. So, how does lip syncing work then? Um, in many early 1930s musicals would record musical numbers live on set. But in general... You get a, you just get a clearer sound, and it's easier to edit if you record the stuff in a studio, then do playback on the set. Although the performer may or may not just mouth words, but right. sing enough in, in and of themselves. As long as the radio, as long as the microphones pick it, don't pick it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, sort of like that. A lot of 1930s musicals were recorded live. There was a, still a lot of experimentation that had to be done to get sound down in the first place. Mm. Uh, I mean, part of the singing in the rain fictionalizes those yes. kind of struggles. Oh, no, that's, and that one I will let, I like, when you talk about, oh, I need my music, I, I want my linear stories. No, it, it's kind of like, that's the point. You know, when you see... Um, Shoot, I'm sorry, because I know uh, Fred Astaire, sick, or was it Gene Kelly? I'm sorry. Gene Kelly. Gene Kelly doing Singing in the Rain. Well, of course, it's a, mo- it's a movie where about these musical numbers. Uh-huh. There's your backstage musical stuff. Um, so, yeah, it's very forgivable. I will say... Okay, no, no, all right. Um, yeah, some, I don't know what the situation was in this case but yeah uh, it was not uncommon to do live singing some of these earlier musicals but I think by the end of the decade playback became more right. common well, just because it was easier to put, throw together there have been a few attempts to do live singing on set since then most notorious uh, Peter Bogdanovich did this with uh, At Long Last Love and Tom Hooper did this for at least Parts of Lady Zoram, but there aren't a ton of examples because you know it's exhausting for performers. Yes. So, I will have to mention Conan O'Brien flashbacks from this movie. What do you mean? Oh, I'm the ghost of, oh, of the uh, studio. The, go- the Artie the Kendall the ghost crooner skits. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is another one. For, oh. You didn't like that one? How about this one for the lady? <laughs> um, so, but it, it also tells me that there is something fascinating about black and white. Yeah. I mean, I love, like, and I think that's why um, 
I really like, oh, I just love how everybody looks in Boardwalk Empire. Because I think just, I mean, granted, it's color. But I think it pulls me back to that era where with black and white, everything seemingly had to be done to perfection to look good. Oh, yeah. But one of the problems they had with one of the reasons colorization didn't become mainstream practice was because they would often try and work from the actual colors the people were wearing on sets at the time. But since these those colors were picked for how they'd shoot in black and white, it's the famous it's the famous meme of and here is the Adams family actual home. Yeah. And pinks. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Now black and white is as or color is as much of a tool as anything in visuals. I'm I'm kind of on the on the camp of like unless you're doing something dare I say, um, maximalist, don't shoot it in black color. Let's just do it black and white, man. Your story will carry it. I don't know. There are plenty of films that you find interesting ways to use color that are relatively down to earth. Yeah, but, you know... a symbolic like, purpose that you wouldn't find in black and white. Well, yes, there is obviously great symbolic usage, i.e. Wizard of Oz. But, I don't know, it's like... I love the charm of Cohen's basically replacing all colors in all movies with the technology. And I, I'm a big fan of uh, The Man Who Wasn't There, where they basically shot the movie in color and then removed it all. Uh-huh. So, again, and then I, I made the four, the $5 iTunes binge, per, you know. Oh, forgetting... Um, Llewellyn Davis movie that's going to qualify for 90 for Jill because there's no post scene I, I would not think the Coen brothers would put a post scene yeah closest thing to a post scene was Pickles the cat dropping the lost finger into the du- the dumpster where all the bodies end up on the garbage boat all the bodies end up on in the um, lady killers which yeah Definitely, probably the worst hate, worst Coen Brothers movie, but still a lot of fun. So, um, I mean, there's just so much stuff I like outside of these musical numbers. Uh-huh. Like, I love the dialogue. Yeah, it's kind of like you, it, it's kind of like you could tell the difference between a Kevin Smith movie and a Tarantino movie based on like, well, Tarantino's pulling all these references yeah. in his dialogue. You can tell that, oh yeah, he watched all, I mean, obviously you watch all the movies and, um, and Smith is a little more like, what would you say with your buddies and too much on focus trying to create his own way of explaining great stuff? Well, I think then if this one didn't quite do it for you. Well, no, I'm, I'm just saying like, I'm good until like, okay. And well, this was 20 minutes too long. I mean, yes, that's a very beautiful violin made of people, but no. And then, um, you know, I think we're almost to a wrap-up point, honestly. Um, It goes back to the Hayes Code. Uh, Was the Hayes Code more about censorship or putting down counterculture? It was really both. Well, I, I mean, I, they're pretty intimately tied up. Yeah, there I, have been part of the reason the Hayes Code came up was because. It was felt that Hollywood was a profoundly immoral industry that just come up, was coming off of 
some terrible scandals such as the Betty Arbuckle scandal. And they felt that regulating content might help regulate the larger industry. Mm. In fact, one reason Mosby Berkeley's career Warner Brothers had to be, was curtailed by the, around the end of the 30s, I think, was because he got involved in a drunk driving arrest. And this was just as the Hayes Code was starting to be very stringently enforced. Mm. And, and that may have factored into him being let go. Although he would do work for MGM later on yeah, in the 40s. Right. Um, but, yeah, there was, a, they were trying to avoid wor- a worse fate from, high, from you know, higher government forces. It took a long and, time. And the, and the Catholics, I know they were yeah. a big part of that, which, why were they a big part of that? Because I thought that was the entire reason we didn't want to, there was opposition to Kennedy was because he was a Catholic. Um, I know that's at least how, what Grandma Polk said about Grandpa Henson. <laughs> Yeah, I voted Democrat all the way until a Catholic was their nomination. Well, if you, so racism. So if you, you find this something like this hit or miss, mm. you might if you're looking for other pre codes, mm. uh, maybe the screwball comedies are more your alley. Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of stuff I mean to catch up on yeah. from the pre the pre code era. Uh, the uh, maybe look more of the comic vehicles for like the Marx Brothers, especially oh, the Paramount stuff, no, more I'm, than the MGM mm-hmm. stuff later. Uh, Par- Paramount stuff, uh, maybe Mae West, because mm. snappy dialogue, that's very common. In yeah, oh no, I mean... You, that's practically well, a feature, not a bug. Yes. Well, I, In fact, many of the pre-codes that Criterion's Program channels programs featured. Some of them are barely over an hour. Well, yeah. <laughs> these are some very. These can be very fast. Well, you're gonna, you, well, keep in mind you're you're spending like the entire night at the cinema. Yeah, and hence why the movies be, are yeah because you a you pictures, b pictures, newsreels, cartoons. Yeah, um, but yeah. So remember my forgotten man. Great song. I mean, I can't fault... Well, petting the parts just a little... Goes a little too long for my taste. Yeah. Like, um, Okay, you got... Maybe that's why Busby Bud, Berkeley got better billing than... Like, where's the, th- where's the third verse? Anywhere? You got a third verse anywhere? Like, you're not Weird Al Yankovic. This is not supposed to be... Yeah! <laughs> you... Oh, sorry. So much... Uh, UHF stuff did come to mind during this. Um, but it's like, that number is, again, like, why do you end it on such a down note? Everybody, everybody wins. Oh, yeah, remember the Depression? What, you have entered this movie theater to escape? Here's a, here's a retelling of where we're at. Well, like, plenty what of the, maximalist what? films and even it's some one of our great blockbusters have managed to work in fairly heavy themes and stuff. Not right at, No, there's a difference between heavy themes. That would have made a lot more sense in the middle of the movie. But to basically say, there's your happy ending. Now, you, now you have to pay for it. I don't think it's quite, <laughs> plays quite that way. Like, this is like... I, this isn't like bad lieutenant, or where what well, we knew he's get, we knew despite he found his salvation mm-hmm. that he had to get shot down. That's it. I need Abel Ferreira to make a gold diggers movie. Um, 
Like, it's like, but it's, it really felt like we got punished for having a good time. Like, you didn't really tell us what this musical is about to begin with. I guess it's another problem of mine. I love the con games. I mean, that's what I really loved about the movie. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh yes, I, and maybe it's the professional wrestler in me, you know, where I'm in a business of, yeah, I'm trying to, trying to screw you guys, you know, mock you guys. Superman! The Spotify podcasters gave me a nice chance to see the warnings, but failed to miss it. So, regardless, let's just wrap her up. Uh, thank you very much to Poetic Curry for coming on. Um, pre-code suggestions from you were the Marx Brothers, Mae West, uh, Paramount stuff. Yeah, Paramount early... The early 30s Paramount stuff in general is really good, especially some of the horror stuff they did around that time. Okay. Um, you can follow what the Poetic Critic is watching on Letterboxd. I hope... Um, um, uh, Miss Richie is not too offended <laughs> for being uh, pulled out on this one. Maybe give follow a cat, a cat plus Russ a follow on Twitter, <laughs> Jessica, and we'll be fine. Um, but otherwise, anything else you want to promote? Not today. Okay. And as for me, you missed my wrestling talk, trying to get her back on the side. The Poetic Critic was at WrestleMania 1. Well, not at. It was good old days of short circuit cinema. I really... Closed circuit. Thank you. I don't know. Professional wrestling, short circuits, kind of seems more right. <laughs> Closed circuit television. Um, back at Robinson Memorial Fieldhouse in Peoria. Kind of miss the old days of Fieldhouses. Uh, you can follow what I'm li- watching on Letterbox at Cat Plus. Well, the username is CM Darth. That's Cookie Monster Darth or Cool Movies Darth. Anything that did not actually get popular with my fellow podcasters um and follow me on twitter at catbus russ follow me on mastodon at russ stevens at mastodon.social and rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast apps we're recording this on spotify and if you're on apple Podcasts, i will reciprocate with a five-star review the username is the scoops daily so um, otherwise, I do need guests for the show, so if you would, feel free to send an email to russthebus07 at gmail.com. That's R-U-S-S-T-H-E-B-U-S-07 at gmail.com. Offer me a movie, a theme, a director, an actor. Look, as I say, I prefer under 100-minute movies, but I can make anything work. So, I'm... Well, I don't know if I can make Mila's Foreman work, <laughs> but... You know, rare, usually directors have some small, brief little feature that somewhere in their philography. And otherwise, thank you to Stacia Harden for keeping an eye on my butt. And I hope you're doing the same to everybody else you touched in your life. And as always, I hope you're smothering that little one-eared angel skimble shanks. So thank you to the Poetic Critic for coming back on the show. And thank you very much for watching. Or, sorry, listening. I got flagged on YouTube for by Studio Ghibli. Maybe that's why I'm not giving him the right... Giving Miyazaki the right treatment tonight. But thanks again for coming. Can I hear a wahoo?